3. Burn. ONK 4.844. Tiger. SDKR. First Centiliter AH Bennett. ONK 10.700. Tiger. SDKR. 2D Centiliters H Turner. ONK 22.720. Tiger. LDG. Carpenter's Crew. Neil Bradley. ON 346.621. Lion. LDG. Carpenter's Crew. E. Curry. ON 344.851. Lion. Sick birth attendant C.S. Hutchinson. ON M3.882. Tiger. Chapter Writer S.G. White. ON 340.597. Tiger. Third Writer H.C. Green. ON M8.266. Tiger. Officer Steward. 3D Centiliters F.W. Curley. ONL 2.716. Tiger. Honors awarded. Lower Chamberlain's Office. St. James's Palace. March 3rd, 1915. The King has been graciously pleased to give orders for the following appointment to the Most Honorable Order of the Bath. In recognition of the services of the undermint island officer mentioned in the foregoing dispatch, to be an additional member of the military division of the third class or companion. Capt. Osmond de Beauvoir Brock. ADC Royal Navy. Admiralty, S.W. March 3, 1915. The King has been graciously pleased to give orders for the following appointment to the Distinguished Service Order, and for the award of the Distinguished Service Cross, to the undermint island officers in recognition of their services mentioned in the foregoing dispatch, to be companion of the Distinguished Service Order, Lut. Frederick Thornton Peters, Royal Navy, to receive the Distinguished Service Cross, Sir Probationer James Alexander Sterling, RNVR Gunner T. Joseph H. Burton, Chief Carpenter Frederick E. Daly. The following promotion has been made, Commander Charles Andrew Fountain to be a captain in His Majesty's Fleet. To date March 3, 1915, the following awards have also been made, to receive the Distinguished Service Medal, POJW Kemet, ON 186.788, ABH Davis. ON 184.526, ABHF Griffin, ONJ 14.160, ABPS Livingstone, ON 234.328, ABH Robison, ON 209.112, ABGHL Sealer, ON 156.802, Boy, 1st Centiliter FGH Bamford, ONJ 26.598, Boy, 1st Centiliter JF Rogers, ONJ 28.329, Chapter ER Art, 1st Centiliter ER Hughes, ON 268.999, Chapter ER Art, 2D Centiliters WB Dand, ON 270.648, Chapter ER Art, W Gillespie, ON 270.080, Magn, AJ Cannon, ON 175.440, Magn, ECF Grave. ON 288.231, Chapter SDKR, P. Callaghan, ON 278.953, Chapter SDKR, A. W. Ferris, ON 175.824, Chapter SDKR, J. E. James, ON 174.232, Chapter SDKR, W. E. James, ON 294.406, Chapter SDKR, J. Keating, RFRON 165.732, SDKR, PON Flood, RFRON 153.418, SDKR, POTW Hardy, ON 292.542, SDKR, POAJ Sims, 
Boan 276.502, SDKR, POS West Hawaii, RFROM 300.938, ACK, LDG, SDKR, J Blackburn, ONK 4.844, SDKR, First Centiliter AH Bennett, ONK 10.700, SDKR, 2D Centiliters H Turner, ONK 22.720, LDG, Carpenter's Crew, EO Bradley, ON 346.621, LDG, Carpenter's Crew, E. Curry, ON 344.851, Sick Birth Attendant C.S. Hutchinson, ON M3.882, Chapter Writer F.G. White, ON 340.597, Third Writer H.C. Green, ON M8.266, Officer Steward, 3D Centiliters F.W. Curley, ON L2.716, Battle of the Falklands Admiralty, March 3, 1915. The following dispatch has been received from Vice Admiral Sir F.C. Dufnster D. KCBC DOCNG reporting the action off the Falkland Islands on Tuesday, the 8th of December, 1914, Invincible, at sea, December 19th, 1914. Sir, I had the honor to forward a report on the action which took place on December 8th, 1914 against a German squadron off the Falkland Islands, I had the honor to be, Sir, your obedient servant, FCDSDURDA, Vice Admiral, Commander-in-Chief, the Secretary, Admiralty, a preliminary movements, the squadron, consisting of HM ships invincible, flying my flag, flag capped, Percy T. Beamish, inflexible, capped, Richard F. Fillimore, Carnarvon, flying the flag of Rear Admiral Archibald P. Sobdart, Flag capped. Harry L. D. Single quote E. Skip with Cornwall. Capt. Walter M. Ellerton, Count. Capt. John D. Allen, Glasgow. Capt. John Lose, Bristol. Capt. Basil H. Fanchoe, and Macedonia. Capt. Bertram S. Evans, arrived at Port Stanley, Falkland Islands, at 10.30 a.m. on Monday, December 7, 1914. Coaling was commenced at once in order that the ships should be ready to resume the search for the enemy's squadron the next evening, December 8th, at 8 a.m. on Tuesday, December 8th. A signal was received from the signal station on shore, a four-funnel and two-funnel man-of-war in sight from Sapper Hill, steering northward. Illustration, the Battle of the Falkland Islands from the official report of Admiral S.D.U.R.D.A. The numbers given on the plan show the corresponding positions of vessels at various times. All ships bearing the same number were simultaneously in the positions charted. At this time the positions of the various ships of the squadron were as follows. Macedonia, at anchor as lookout ship. Count guard ship, at anchor in Port William. Invincible and inflexible, in Port William. Carnarvon, in Port William. Cornwall, in Port William. Glasgow, in Port Stanley. Bristol, in Port Stanley. The camp was at once ordered to away and a general signal was made to erase steam for full speed. At 8.20 a.m. the signal station reported another column of smoke in sight to the southward, and at 8.45 a.m. the camp passed down the harbor and took up a station at the entrance. The Canopus, Capt. Heathkit S. Grant, reported at 8.47 a.m. that the first two ships were eight miles off, and that the smoke reported at 8.20 a.m. appeared to be the smoke of two ships about 20 miles off. At 8.50 a.m. the signal station reported a further column of smoke in sight to the southward. The Macedonia was ordered to away anchor on the inner side of the other ships, and await orders. 
at 9.20 a.m. the two leading ships of the enemy, Nisenau and Nuremberg, with guns trained on the wireless station, came within range of the Canopus, which opened fire at them across the low land at a range of 11.000 yards. The enemy at once hoisted their colors and turned away. At this time the masts and smoke of the enemy were visible from the upper bridge of the Invincible at a range of approximately 17.000 yards across the low land to the south of Port William. A few minutes later the two cruisers altered course to port, as though to close the camp at the entrance to the harbor, but about this time it seems that the Invincible and Inflexible were seen over the land, as the enemy at once altered course and increased speed to join their consorts. The Glasgow weighed and proceeded at 9.40 a.m. with orders to join the camp and observe the enemy's movements. At 9.45 a.m. the squadron left the Bristol weighed, and proceeded out of harbor in the following order, Carnarvon, Inflexible, Invincible, and Cornwall. On passing Cape Pembroke light the five ships of the enemy appeared clearly in sight to the southeast. Held down, the visibility was at its maximum. The sea was calm, with a bright Sunday a clear sky and a light breeze from the northwest. At 10.20 a.m. the signal for a general chase was made. The battle cruisers quickly passed ahead of the Carnarvon and overtook the Count. The Glasgow was ordered to keep two miles from the Invincible, and the Inflexible was stationed on the starboard quarter of the flagship. Speed was eased to 20 knots at 11.15 a.m. to enable the other cruisers to get into station. At this time the enemy's funnels and bridges showed just above the horizon. Information was received from the Bristol at 11.27 a.m. that three enemy ships had appeared off Port Pleasant, probably colliers or transports. The Bristol was therefore directed to take the Macedonia under orders and destroy transports. The enemy were still maintaining their distance, and I decided, at 12.20 p.m. to attack with the two battle cruisers and the Glasgow. At 12.47 p.m. the signal to open fire and engage the enemy was made. The inflexible open fire at 12.55 p.m. from her fore turret at the right-hand ship of the enemy, a light cruiser, a few minutes later the invincible opened fire at the same ship. The deliberate fire from a range of 16.500 to 15.000 yards at the right-hand light cruiser, which was dropping astern, became too threatening, and when a shell fell close alongside her at 1.20 p.m. she the Leipzig turned away, with the Nuremberg and Dresden to the southwest. These light cruisers were at once followed by the Count, Glasgow, and Cornwall. In accordance with my instructions, the action finally developed into three separate encounters, besides the subsidiary one dealing with the threatened landing, the action with the armored cruisers, the fire of the battle cruisers was directed on the Scharnhorst and Nisenau. The effect of this was quickly seen when, at 1.25 p.m. with the Scharnhorst leading, they turned about seven points to port in succession into a line ahead and opened fire at 1.30 p.m. Shortly afterward speed was eased to 24 knots and the battle cruisers were ordered to turn together, bringing them into a line ahead, with the Invincible leading. The range was about 13.500 yards at the final turn, and increased until at 2 p.m. it had reached 16.450 yards. The enemy then to 10 p.m. turned away about 10 points to starboard and a second chase ensued until at 2.45 p.m. the battle cruisers again opened fire, this caused the enemy, at 2.53 p.m. to turn into a line ahead to port and open fire at 2.55 p.m. the Scharnhorst caught fire forward, but not seriously, and her fire slackened perceptibly, the Nisenau was badly hit by the inflexible, at 3.30 p.m. the Scharnhorst led around about 10 points to starboard, 
just previously her fire had slackened perceptibly, and one shell had shot away her third funnel, some guns were not firing, and it would appear that the turn was dictated by a desire to bring her starboard guns into action. The effect of the fire on the Scharnhorst became more and more apparent in consequence of smoke from fires, and also escaping steam. At times a shell would cause a large hole to appear in her side, through which could be seen a dull red glow of flame. At 4.04 p.m. the Scharnhorst, whose flag remained flying to the last, suddenly listed heavily to port, and within a minute it became clear that she was a doomed ship, for the list increased very rapidly until she lay on her beam ends and at 4.17 p.m. she disappeared. The Niza now cascade on the far side of her late flagship, and continued a determined but ineffectual effort to fight the two battle cruisers. At 5.08 p.m. the forward funnel was knocked over and remained resting against the second funnel. She was evidently in serious straits, and her fire slackened very much. At 5.15 p.m. one of the Niza now shells struck the Invincible. This was her last effective effort. At 5.30 p.m. she turned toward the flagship with a heavy list to starboard, and appeared stopped, with steam pouring from her escape pipes and smoke from shell and fires rising everywhere. About this time I ordered the signal, cease fire, but before it was hoisted the Niza now opened fire again, and continued to fire from time to time with a single gun. At 5.40 p.m. the three ships closed in on the Niza now, and at this time the flag flying at her fore truck was apparently hauled down but the flag at the peak continued flying. At 5.50 p.m., cease fire, was made. At 6 p.m. the Niza now heeled over very suddenly, showing the men gathered on her decks and then walking on her side as she lay for a minute on her beam ends before sinking. The prisoners of war from the Niza now report that by the time the ammunition was expended some 600 men had been killed and wounded. The surviving officers and men were all ordered on deck and told to provide themselves with hammocks and any articles that could support them in the water. When the ship capsized and sank there were probably some 200 unwounded survivors in the water, but, owing to the shock of the cold water, many were drowned within sight of the boats and ship. Every effort was made to save life as quickly as possible, both by boats and from the ships, life buoys were thrown and ropes lowered, but only a portion could be rescued. The Invincible alone rescued 108 men, 14 of whom were found to be dead after being brought on board. These men were buried at sea the following day with full military honors. See action with the light cruisers. At about 1 p.m. when the Schornhorst and Niza now turned to port to engage the Invincible and Inflexible, the enemy's light cruisers turned to starboard to escape. The Dresden was leading and the Nuremberg and Leipzig followed on each quarter. In accordance with my instructions, the Glasgow, Count, and Cornwall at once went in chase of these ships, the Carnarvon, whose speed was insufficient to overtake them, closed the battle cruisers, the Glasgow drew well ahead of the Cornwall and Count, and at 3 p.m. shots were exchanged with the Leipzig at 12.000 yards, the Glasgow's object was to endeavor to outrange the Leipzig with her 6-inch guns and thus cause her to alter course and give the Cornwall and Count a chance of coming into action. At 4.17 p.m. the Cornwall opened fire, also on the Leipzig. At 7.17 p.m. the Leipzig was on fire fore and aft, and the Cornwall and Glasgow ceased fire. The Leipzig turned over on her port side and disappeared at 9 p.m. Seven officers and 11 men were saved. At 3.36 p.m. the Cornwall ordered the camp to engage the Nuremberg, the nearest cruiser to her, owing to the excellent and strenuous efforts of the engine room department. 
the camp was able to get within range of the Nuremberg at 5 p.m. At 6.35 p.m. the Nuremberg was on fire forward and ceased firing. The camp also ceased firing and closed to 3.300 yards, as the colors were still observed to be flying on the Nuremberg. The camp opened fire again. Fire was finally stopped five minutes later on the colors being hauled down, and every preparation was made to save life. The Nuremberg sank at 7.27 p.m. and, as she sank, a group of men were waving a German ensign attached to a staff. Twelve men were rescued, but only seven survived. The count had four killed and twelve wounded, mostly caused by one shell. During the time the three cruisers were engaged with the Nuremberg in Leipzig, the Dresden, which was beyond her consorts, effected her escape owing to her superior speed. The Glasgow was the only cruiser with sufficient speed to have had any chance of success. However, she was fully employed in engaging the Leipzig for over an hour before either the Cornwall or Camp could come up and get within range. During this time the Dresden was able to increase her distance and get out of sight. The weather changed after 4 p.m. and the visibility was much reduced. Further, the sky was overcast and cloudy, thus assisting the Dresden to get away unobserved. The action with the enemy's transports. A report was received at 11.27 a.m. from HMS Bristol that three ships of the enemy, probably transports or colliers, had appeared off Port Pleasant. The Bristol was ordered to take the Macedonia under his orders and destroy the transports. HMS Macedonia reports that only two ships, steamships Bogdan and Santa Isabel, were present. Both ships were sunk after the removal of the crews. I had pleasure in reporting that the officers and men under my orders carried out their duties with admirable efficiency and coolness, and great credit is due to the engineer officers of all the ships, several of which exceeded their normal full speed. The names of the following are specially mentioned, Officers, Commander Richard Herbert Denny Townsend, HMS Invincible, Commander Arthur Edward Frederick Bedford, HMS Count, Lut, Commander Wilfred Arthur Thompson, HMS Glasgow, Lut, Commander Hubert Edward Danreuter, First and Gunnery Lieutenant, HMS Invincible, Engineer Commander George Edward Andrew, HMS Count, Engineer Commander Edward John Weeks, HMS Invincible, Paymaster Cyril Sheldon Johnson, HMS Invincible, Carpenter Thomas Andrew Walls, HMS Invincible, Carpenter William Henry Venning, HMS Count, Carpenter George Henry Egford, HMS Cornwall, Petty Officers and Men, Chapter P.O.D. Layton, O.N. 124.288, Count, Page to d Sendilators M.J. Walton, R.F.R.A. 1.756, O.N. 118.358, Count, L.D.G. Isman, F.S. Martin, O.N. 233.301, Invincible, G.N.R.S., Mate, Gun Lawyer, First Sendilator Sign, F. Glover, O.N. 225.731, Cornwall, Chapter E.R. Art, to Descendilators J.G. Hill, O.N. 269.646, Cornwall, Act, Chapter E.R. Art, to Descendilators R. Snowden, O.N. 270.654, Inflexible, E.R. Art, First Sendilator G.H.F. McCartan, O.N. 270.023, Invincible, S.D.K.R., P.O.G.S. Brewer, O.N. 150.950, Count, S.D.K.R., P.O.W.A. Townsend, O.N. 301.650, Cornwall, S.D.K.R., First Sendilator J. Smith, O.N. S.S. 111.915, Cornwall, S.H.P.W.R.D., First Sendilator A.N.E. England, 
OM 341.971, Glasgow, SHPWRD, 2D Centiliters ACH Diamond, OM 8.047, Count, Portsmouth or FRB 3.307 Served, Charles Mays, HMS Count, FCDSPURD, Between Midnight and Morning, by Sir Owen Seaman, from King Albert's book, You that have faith to look with fearless eyes beyond the tragedy of a world at strife and trust that out of night and death shall rise the dawn of ampler life, rejoice, whatever anguish rend your heart, that God has given you, for a priceless dower, to live in these great times and have your part in freedom's crowning hour, that you may tell your sons who see the light high in the heavens, their heritage to take, I saw the powers of darkness put to flight, I saw the morning break, the greatest of campaigns the French official account concluded the second and succeeding installments the first installment appeared in current history for April of the official French historical review of the operations in the western theater of war from the beginning until the end of January, 1915 the first six months are described in the subjoined correspondence of the Associated Press, London, March 18th, correspondence of the Associated Press. The Associated Press has received the second installment of the historical review emanating from French official sources of the operations in the Western Theater of War. From its beginning up to the end of January, it should be understood that the narrative is made purely from the French standpoint. The additional installment of the document dealing with the victory of the Marne, September 6-15, is as follows. If one examines on the map the respective positions of the German and French armies on September 6th as previously described, it will be seen that by his inflection toward Moan Kulamire's General von Kluck was exposing his right to the offensive action of our left. This is the starting point of the victory of the Marne. On the evening of September 5th our left army had reached the front pensured saint Soufflet version. On the 6th and 7th it continued its attacks vigorously with the Auerk as objective. On the evening of the 7th it was some kilometers from the hour. On the front Chambery Marcel lies the and multi in. On the 8th, the Germans, who had in great haste reinforced their right by bringing their 2nd and 4th Army Corps back to the north, obtained some successes by attacks of extreme violence. They occupied Betz, Thursday and Valois, and Nanchewail-Holduin. But in spite of this pressure our troops held their ground well. In a brilliant action they took three standards, and, being reinforced, prepared a new attack for the 10th. At the moment that this attack was about to begin the enemy was already in retreat toward the north. The attack became a pursuit, and on the 12th we established ourselves on the aim. Left of KLUCK's army threatened. Why did the German forces which were confronting us and on the evening before attacking so furiously retreat on the morning of the 10th? Because in bringing back on the 6th several army corps from the south to the north to face our left the enemy had exposed his left to the attacks of the British army, which had immediately faced around toward the north, and to those of our armies which were prolonging the English lines to the right. This is what the French command had sought to bring about. This is what happened on September 8th and allowed the development and rehabilitation which it was to effect. On the 6th the British Army had set out from the line Rosgilagny and had that evening reached the southward bank of the Grand Morin. On the 7th and 8th it continued its march, and on the 9th had debouched to the north of the Marne below Chateauvieri, taking in flank the German forces which on that day were opposing, on the Auerk, our left army. Then it was that these forces began to retreat, while the British Army, going in pursuit and capturing seven guns and many prisoners reached the aim between Soissons and Longueville. The role of the French army, 
which was operating to the right of the British Army, was threefold. It had to support the British attacking on its left. It had on its right to support our center, which from September 7th had been subjected to a German attack of great violence. Finally, its mission was to throw back the three active Army Corps and the Reserve Corps which faced it. On the 7th it made a leap forward, and on the following days reached and crossed the Marne, seizing, after desperate fighting, guns, howitzers, mitrailleuses, and 1.300.000 cartridges. On the 12th it established itself on the north edge of the Montigny de Rhine in contact with our center, which for its part had just forced the enemy to a retreat in haste. The action of FERECHA and PNOIC. Our center consisted of a new army created on August 29th and of one of those which at the beginning of the campaign had been engaged in Belgian Luxembourg. The first had retreated on August 29th to September 5th from the Aisne to the north of the Marne and occupied the general front says on Maoli. The second, more to the east, had drawn back to the south of the line Humbaville Chateau Beauchamp Vignacourt Blesens Morat Pomondoui. The enemy, in view of his right being arrested and the defeat of his enveloping movement, made a desperate effort from the 7th to the 10th to pierce our center to the west and to the east of Fier Champion was. On the 8th he succeeded in forcing back the right of our new army, which retired as far as Gurgenkan. On the 9th, at 6 o'clock in the morning, there was a further retreat to the south of that village, while on the left the other army corps also had to go back to the line element commenter. Despite this retreat the general commanding the army ordered a general offensive for the same day, with the Morocco division, whose behavior was heroic. He met a furious assault of the Germans on his left toward the marshes of St. Gond. Then with the division which had just victoriously overcome the attacks of the enemy to the north of Cezanne, and with the whole of his left army corps, he made a flanking attack in the evening of the 9th upon the German forces, and notably the guard, which had thrown back his right army corps. The enemy, taken by surprise by this bold maneuver, did not resist, and beat a hasty retreat. On the 11th we crossed the Marne between Tours sur Marne and Surrey, driving the Germans in front of us in disorder. On the 12th we were in contact with the enemy to the north of the Camp de Calons. Our other army of the center, acting on the right of the one just referred to, had been entrusted with the mission during the 7th, 8th, and 9th of disengaging its neighbor, and it was only on the 10th that, being reinforced by an army corps from the east, it was able to make its action effectively felt. On the 11th the Germans retired, but, perceiving their danger, they fought desperately with enormous expenditure of projectiles, behind strong entrenchments. On the 12th the result had nonetheless been attained, and our two center armies were solidly established on the ground gained. The operations of the right, to the right of these two armies were three others. They had orders to cover themselves to the north and to debouch toward the west on the flank of the enemy, which was operating to the west of the Argonne, but a wide interval in which the Germans were in force separated them from our center. The attack took place. Nevertheless, with very brilliant success for our artillery, which destroyed 11 batteries of the 16th German Army Corps, on the 10th inst, the 8th and 15th German Army Corps counter-attacked, but were repulsed. On the 11th our progress continued with new successes, and on the 12th we were able to face round toward the north in expectation of the near and inevitable retreat of the enemy, which, in fact, took place from the 13th. The withdrawal of the mass of the German force involved also that of the left. From the 12th onward the forces of the enemy operating between Nancy and the Vosges retreated in a hurry before our two armies of the east, 
which immediately occupied the positions that the enemy had evacuated. The offensive of our right had thus prepared and consolidated in the most full way the result secured by our left and our center. Such was the seven days battle, in which more than two millions of men were engaged. Each army gained ground step by step, opening the road to its neighbor, supported at once by it, taking in flank the adversary which the day before it had attacked in front, the efforts of one articulating closely with those of the other, a perfect unity of intention and method animating the supreme command. To give this victory all its meaning it is necessary to add that it was gained by troops which for two weeks had been retreating, and which, when the order for the offensive was given, were found to be as ardent as on the first day. It has also to be said that these troops had to meet the whole German army, and that from the time they marched forward they never again fell back. Under their pressure the German retreat at certain times had the appearance of a rout, in spite of the fatigue of our men, in spite of the power of the German heavy artillery. We took colors, guns, mitrailleuses, shells, more than a million cartridges, and thousands of prisoners. A German corps lost almost the whole of its artillery, which, from information brought by our airmen, was destroyed by our guns. The rush to the sea. London, March 18th, the third installment of the historical review of the war, emanating from French official sources and purely from the French viewpoint, has been received by the Associated Press. The French narrative contains a long chapter on the siege war from the Oise to the Vosges, which lasted from September 13th to November 30th. Most of the incidents in this prolonged and severe warfare have been recorded in the daily bulletins. The operations were of secondary importance, and were conducted on both sides with the same idea of wearing down the troops and the artillery of the opposing forces with the view of influencing the decisive result in the great theater of war in the north. The next chapter deals with the rush to the sea. September 13th to October 23rd, and is as follows, general character of the action. As early as September 11th the commander-in-chief had directed our left army to have as important forces as possible on the right bank of the Oise. On September 17th he made that instruction more precise by ordering a mass to be constituted on the left wing of our disposition, capable of coping with the outflanking movement of the enemy. Everything led us to expect that flanking movement for the Germans are lacking in invention. Indeed, their effort at that time tended to a renewal of their maneuver of August. In the parallel race the opponents were bound in the end to be stopped only by the sea, that is what happened about October 20th. The Germans had an advantage over us, which is obvious from a glance at the map the concentric form of their front, which shortened the length of their transports. In spite of this initial inferiority we arrived in time. From the middle of September to the last week in October fighting went on continually to the north of the Waz, but all the time we were fighting we were slipping northward. On the German side this movement brought into a line more than 18 new army corps, 12 active army corps, 6 reserve corps, 4 cavalry corps. On our side it ended in the constitution of three fresh armies on our left and in the transport into the same district of the British army and the Belgian army from Antwerp. For the conception and realization of this fresh and extended disposition the French command, in the first place, had to reduce to a minimum the needs for effectives of our armies to the east of the Oise, and afterwards to utilize to the utmost our means of transport. It succeeded in this, and when, at the end of October, the Battle of Flanders opened, when the Germans, having completed the concentration of their forces, attempted with fierce energy to turn or to pierce our left. They flung themselves upon a resistance which inflicted upon them a complete defeat. Deployment of a First Army 
the movement began on our side only with the resources of the army which had held the left of our front during the Battle of the Marne, reinforced on September 15th by one army corps. This reinforcement, not being sufficient to hold the enemy's offensive, district of Vaudelinkert Muchiwabi, a fresh army was transported more to the left, with the task of acting against the German right wing in order to disengage its neighbor while preserving a flanking direction in its march in relation to the fresh units that the enemy might be able to put into a line, to cover the detrainments of this fresh army in the district clermont Bovis Boya Cavalry Corps and four territorial divisions were ordered to establish themselves on both banks of the Somme, in the wooded hills, however, which extend between the Waz and Lassigny the enemy displayed increasing activity, nevertheless, the order still further to broaden the movement toward the left was maintained, while the territorial divisions were to move toward Bethune and Obigny, the march to the sea went on. From the 21st to the 26th all our forces were engaged in the district Lassigny Rai with alternations of reverse and success. It was the first act of the great struggle which was to spread as it went on. On the 26th the whole of the 6th German army was deployed against us. We retained all our positions, but we could do no more, consequently there was still the risk that the enemy by means of a fresh afflux of forces, might succeed in turning us. Once more reinforcements, to Army Corps, were directed no longer on Bovis, but toward Amiens. The front was then again to extend. A fresh army was constituted more to the north. Deployment of the Second Army. From September 30th onward we could not but observe that the enemy, already strongly posted on the plateau of Thietval, was continually slipping his forces from south to north and everywhere confronting us with remarkable energy. Accordingly, on October 1st two cavalry corps were directed to make a leap for Rue.